All right, well, we're going to go ahead and continue on in our, our uh, series with the book of John. And today we are going to head and, and making it through the last bit of chapter 10. And today is going to actually uh, review Jesus' um, last recorded converse, uh, confrontation with the angry crowd, the, the Jews and the religious leaders in this area at that time. And after this, Jesus is going to go ahead and make his way beyond the Jordan uh, because of, of just at this point, the attempts on his life are starting to amp up. They're really starting to come after him. And as we read this, you remember uh, Pastor Joseph was ministering last, uh, last week. This is about two months, maybe a little bit more than two months later from, from that point. And, and at this point, Jesus is kind of at like a temporary standstill with all the religious leaders, right? There's, a, there's enough people that are supporting him and that are on their side that the, the religious leaders can't really mount an effective attack. They, they haven't been successful at getting Jesus, and they're, they're kind of at a standstill. But the, and we've seen that they're actually pretty frustrated at this, right? Because they, they want everybody to agree with them that, that Jesus is a false prophet. And, and there are so many that are, that, that are still agreeing with Jesus. You remember the, the defense the blind man made of Jesus. And he's got to be a prophet. He's got to be from God. Because no one has ever done this before. But today, Jesus is making his way back to Jerusalem. And the, the, angry, the, the angry religious leaders are going to have one more chance to uh, confront him as he makes his way to visit the temple during the Feast of Dedication. So in John 10, through 24, it says, At that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So you might be more familiar with the Feast of Dedication under a different name. You've probably heard of it as Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights. But that's actually what this is talking about. This is Hanukkah, the, the Festival of Lights. And this feast was actually in remembrance of the re-consecration re, uh, of the temple by Judas Maccabeus in 165 B.C. after its desecration in 168 B.C. by Antiochus IV. And this festival was actually instituted this time by, by Judas Maccabeus. This actually isn't one of the official festivals that you would find in the Old Testament. This was something that was implemented later. But the purpose of this festival was to remind the Jewish people of their deliverance from their enemies. This festival was usually held in December. It's about eight days long. And, uh, but it is in December, hence the winter. And uh, it's interesting if you look around the world that sometimes places have different winters than us, sometimes they're the same. But it turns out Israel is pretty much on the same schedule as us. They have their winter from December through February, which is kind of opposite if you go down to some place like South Africa. How weird would this be? Their winter is from like June to August. Can you imagine having winter between June to August? At any rate, they're at the same time as us. It's winter, it's December when this festival is usually held. And as I mentioned earlier, this is about two months after the last visit when Jesus was in the temple during the Feast of Booths, which is when uh, the last few weeks that we've been talking about, that's when Jesus was in the temple. And he comes back for this, this celebration, this feast, and he begins making his walk along the, the colonnade of Solomon. 
This was actually a part of the temple, the new temple, that was named after uh, Solomon because they believed it was built on the same area as the old temple that Solomon had built. It was also a place that was commonly used for teaching. So it makes sense that this is where Jesus is going to be making his way around. And as he was walking, it says the, the, the Jews gathered around him. And this is interesting. If you look up the, uh, the word, the Greek word that's being used there, it's a little more intense than gathered around them. Like you could say that right now, you guys are gathered around me as I'm ministering, right? But the word here is actually more like surrounded. So they were kind of pinning him down. He wasn't up there, and they, they weren't in a crowd in front of him waiting to listen and preach. They were actually circling around him. He wasn't able to move. They were pinning him down, and they had this question. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Isn't it interesting that not only do they do it back then, but we do it today too, we begin to have stipulations about how Jesus is supposed to move, what he's supposed to do. We want Jesus to meet us on our terms instead of his. And that's basically what's happening here. They surround him. They want to pin him down. And you meet us on our terms. Tell us plainly, are you, are you the Christ? Now, it's interesting when you read this because it seems obvious to us, especially as we've studied it, that he's already told them that. But the truth is, is that Jesus has never come out and plainly said in those specific words, I am the Messiah. Matter of fact, he never does. He hasn't done it to this point. He doesn't do it after this point. And the likely reason is, is because Jesus is pretty smart. The Messiah had already had a different connotation set to it by the religious leaders and the Jews at the time. You see, they had already taken the word and, and, and this idea of who the Messiah was, and they, they began to shift the definition. Right, we know Jesus as the Messiah that came to save us spiritually, bring his kingdom in the spiritual realm, and, and, and to restore us completely to that place we were in before Adam fell. But they expected a political liberator. They expected a military leader that was going to come and rescue them from Roman rule. You know, Jesus was supposed to come in and gather an army and just really stick it to the people that were oppressing the Jews. Or at least that's who they thought he would be if he was the Messiah. And it's likely for this reason that Jesus never used the word Messiah because he didn't want them to get confused about why he was there, what his mission was. Now, he told them who he was. He told them what his mission was. He told them that he was sent by God, but... but they wanted their liberator. They wanted their political liberator. They wanted their military leader. And, and he didn't want them to be misunderstand who he was there, who he was, and why he was there. In addition, it's likely that they're trying to pin him down because they're looking for a way to, to pin him to the wall. They're looking for a way to, to, to have unrefutable evidence that they, could, that they could get everybody on their side so they could actually finally kill Jesus, this man who was causing them so many problems. And the really is that the only reason he was causing them problems because if he was right, if what he was saying was true, their life would have to change. And they were kind of happy with the status quo, the way things were. And if you've read this, you probably had the same response as me. Wait a minute, Jesus has been telling them the whole time. And, and that's when Jesus responds in verse 25 and 26. He says, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, 
but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So the reality is Jesus has been telling them who he was the entire time. He just didn't say, I'm the Messiah, but Jesus has never been shy about telling them who he was. You see, he had already declared his closeness with the Father. He had already declared that he was sent by the Father, and he had already declared his divinity. That's why they wanted to kill him. That was the biggest issue they had with Jesus, because he claimed to be God. But see, the problem the Jews were having is they just wouldn't listen. Anybody ever had that problem? You know, the funny thing is, 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 is I, I realize in my own life that I don't actually have a problem hearing from God. I have some problems listening sometimes. I don't know anybody can relate with that. And that's the problem here, is Jesus was telling them over and over who he was, but they weren't listening, they weren't hearing it. And the thing is, is Jesus is like, listen, I told you you don't believe, but at least what about the works that I'm doing? They bear witness about me. They're telling you who I am. If, <laughs> and this is when I wrote this statement down. It sounded so silly in my head, but I wrote, in addition, if the words of the Son of God weren't enough, can you imagine that being a statement that we'd have to say, the words of the Son of God weren't enough? But it's like, listen, if, if the words of the Son of God, if, the, if my words aren't enough, look at the evidence of the stuff that I've been doing. Look at the works that I've been doing. They give evidence to who I am. They back me up on what I'm saying. They prove that I'm not lying, that I am who I say I am. And every work that he had ever done, every miracle that he had performed, they were evidence that God was with him. And they bore witness about him. They verified the things that Jesus said were true. And the reason that they didn't believe, it says, is because they weren't among his sheep. Their hearts were already hardened. Their, their heads already made up about who Jesus was. You see, they had already come out and decided that there's no way that Jesus could be the Messiah. He was just someone stirring up trouble. They're, they're, they, they realized that if they were to accept he, who he was, then they would have to go ahead and change their life. Just like so many people do today. It's something I've said before, but it's, it's really a theme that you see in John is this idea that they won't accept who, they, who he is because the reality is that if they accept who he is, their lives have to change. And so many people encounter Jesus just like this, and they say, they say you know what, we just want proof that, that God is real, that Jesus is real. We just want proof that, that what, it, what the Bible says is true. And they say, well, what if I gave you that proof? What if I could say without a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is real, that Jesus is the only way? Would you become a Christian? Well, no. What do you mean, no? The reality is, is if, if all of this is true and they accept it, then their life has to change. You see, once you admit that Jesus is real, that what he says is true, you can't live the way that you were living before. Their life would have to change. And these folks, they weren't about it. It didn't matter what Jesus said. It didn't matter what he did. They weren't going to believe it. But Jesus is the good shepherd. And all that do believe in him, all that put their trust in him, they're a part of his flock. Amen? He goes on to say, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If you want to be a part of Jesus' flock, you need to be among those who believe. And what's amazing about this is, is the Scripture says that those who are part of His flock, those who follow Him, those who hear His voice, those who have put their trust in Him, He says, I know them. I don't know if you understand the implication of what that means. He says, I know them. Do you understand how amazing that is? That the God of all the universe knows you. He doesn't know, just doesn't know about you. He knows you personally. You see that when you, when you put your, your, your trust in Jesus, this, this shows that it's so much more than just a simple decision, decision that you make to follow Jesus, but rather instead there is a, a deep relationship and trust that is involved in putting your trust in Him. There, he knows you. If you put your trust in Jesus, He knows you and He loves you. And this isn't just some abstract concept. This isn't something that they just put on the flyer because it sounds good. You are not just one of the many. He knows you and He loves you personally. Amen? Wow, that's amazing to me. And as a result of this relationship, this trust that we put in Him with the Good Shepherd, we follow Him. That means we're obedient to His Word. We hear His voice and we listen. You guys don't want to be like me where you hear His voice and ignore Him. You want to hear His voice and listen. Amen? I recently watched a video of a rescued sheep that had been wandering around itself in the hills for months. I think it might have been for years. And he could hardly walk because of the excess weight of the wool that had grown on his body over the years and there was no shepherd to take care of him. When they finally found him, his, his legs were weak. He was malnutritioned because he couldn't get around. They cut over like 75 pounds of wool off of this little sheep and it was so heavy he couldn't walk, he couldn't get around. He had wounds on his body, likely because of predators or, or whatever, because he couldn't protect himself, he couldn't get away. In addition to just normally not being able to do those things, he's burdened by all this extra weight. You see, as a result of him being alone, with no shepherd, he had been starved, he had been damaged, and he had been overwhelmed. And here's the thing. The safety and well-being of sheep has nothing to do with the strength of the sheep, with the cleverness of the sheep, with how powerful or how smart. And none of those things. It doesn't matter. The strength and well-being of the sheep has to do with the shepherd. You see, this, this sheep, when he wandered off for the first time, I bet he was fine. He could move. He had no wounds. But over time, with no shepherd to protect him, the world came in around him, the enemies came in around him, they began to attack him, he could no longer keep himself whole. And this is so true of us as well. Our safety, our security, our eternity 
is not secured by our own strength or cleverness or intelligence or commitment or determination or grit. None of those things, praise God if you have them, but none of those things are what secures your eternity. None of those things are what secure your safety, your eternity. It's the shepherd that keeps us whole. It's the shepherd that makes us right. So if we'll put our trust in him, we get one of the most amazing gifts, the most amazing gift. We're given eternal life and will never perish. If you want eternal life, there's only one way, and it's through Jesus. And if you put your trust in him, that's what he gives you. He gives you eternal life. You'll never perish. But then it goes on to say something amazing. It says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, I don't know about you, but this is some of the most amazing news, is that your salvation can't be stolen away. Nothing can take that from you. Paul said, I'm, I'm convinced neither height nor depth nor, nor anything can steal us away, that can take the Father's love away from us. And the reality is that there's nothing that can take your salvation away. It can't be stolen. As long as you continue to put your trust in Jesus, you will remain in the faith, you will remain in eternal security, you will remain as saved and right before the Lord. And as long as you hear and follow His voice, our salvation in eternity is secure. I don't know about you, but I'm really glad that one, I can know for certain that I am saved because it's not based on anything I did, it's based on what he did. And two, my circumstances, my failures, and not even the devil can take that away from me. It can't be stolen away. How many know that's good news? If you put your trust in Jesus, you are secure. You don't have to be concerned. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to think, man, it's, it's you know, the, every other religion in the world, which is based on a foundation of what you can do to be right with God, every single one of them go to their grave wondering if they did enough. Even if, they're, even if they're, what they believed in was true, they wonder that I do enough. Christianity is the only one where we can know because it has nothing to do with what we do. It's everything to do with what he did, amen? And that can never be stolen away. And we continue on in verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now for everybody that claims that Jesus never said he was God, I don't know how they deal with this verse. People, Jesus never said he was God. Jesus just said, I and the Father are one. It seems pretty clear to me what he's claiming. And the reality is, is the Jews did, certainly did not understand, misunderstand him because in the next verse, they're getting ready to stone him for what he just said. For some reason, people today say, Jesus never said he was God, and they completely ignore all the evidence that all the Jews wanted to kill him because he was blaspheming and making himself to be the same as God. Now, this isn't to say that they are the same person. The Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, they are all three distinct persons, but they are all the same God. 
all three are one. And while this is difficult for us to understand, because the reality is in all of creation, there is not another single thing that operates in the same way where we have a frame of reference to understand it. There is not a single thing else in the world that is three distinctly different things, but also the same. But that's the reality. This is what the Bible teaches, is there is three persons, but one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all in alignment. They're all in agreement. They're all one God. And if you want to learn more about this, you can search on our on our, either YouTube or, or our face, or, or, sorry, our, our website for Trinity under the messages, and, and I actually have a five-week series where we talk about what the Scripture says about the Trinity. And the reality is that there's no way around it, that this is what the, the Scripture teaches. Even if we can't fully wrap our head around it, it doesn't make it any less true. Amen? So the reality is, is Jesus is not just merely a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He certainly wasn't just some dude. He is God. Come in the flesh. But there was nothing that could convince them that what he was saying was true. There was nothing that would let them soften their hearts and begin to believe what the Son of God was saying. In verse 31 through 32, it says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? You see, when they heard this, they decided they were going to stone him right then and there. Jesus never said he was God. Why do you think they were getting ready to stone him right now? They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They were under no confusion as to what he was claiming. And this was something that rightfully so that they took very seriously. They were going to kill him right there and then because of what he just said. And when they do this, he sees them picking up the stones and Jesus begins to push back and he says, listen, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? Even all the works that Jesus had done could not convince them that he was telling the truth. And then he continues on in verse 33. It says, The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Is it clear to anybody that the Jews had no misunderstanding to what Jesus was claiming? It says right here that by Jesus saying, I and the Father are one, that he, being a man, was making himself to be God. So they say, listen, it's not for any of your works, which is funny to me because it wasn't that long ago we were reading how they were all upset that he healed on the Sabbath and he was doing these things. Like they, they, they had problems with his works back then, but now all of a sudden, they, you know, no, it's not your works. It's because you blaspheme. It says, you know what? You're a man, but you're making yourself out to be God. And that's punishable by death. But the problem is, is they didn't understand that both were true. Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. He had stepped off of his throne to become a man for us, to ultimately give his life to pay for our sins, to pay the debt that we could never pay. Philippians 2, 5-7 says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing 
to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Jesus set his deity aside to come be a man for us. Now, that doesn't mean he stopped being God. It means that he stopped operating as God as he lived as a man. He was still fully God. Jesus never walked around declaring, I am God, look at me, I am God. But all of his words and all of his actions declared it so. And you can look and see in his life, and like I said, if you, if you want more on this, look up that Trinity series, five weeks. There's, 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 uh, one week is called Jesus Fully God, and the other one is called Jesus Fully Man. And we look at his life where the Bible describes both of those. But when you see, if you go and I'll give you the, the, uh, the too long didn't read of Jesus fully God, you see that men worshipped him and Jesus accepted that worship. You see stuff like this where he says, I and the Father are one, where he declares it clearly. You see where he talks about on the light of the world com- completely uh, aligning himself with deity. You see it over and over and over that Jesus is God. And as I told you earlier, they knew exactly what he was saying. He says, we don't want to stone you. We want to stone you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. And then in verse 34, through 36, it says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Raise your hand here if you read this and went, I have no idea what this is talking about or it confused you a little bit. Just me? Nobody else? Who wants to come up and teach it then? If you guys are all good to go. Hallelujah. You see, one of the things I love about preaching through the, the books of the Bible, verse by verse, is you don't get to skip the tough part. You know, as a pastor, sometimes we want to preach a message and we get to pick out the verses we want to support what we're trying to say. But when you go through it verse by verse, you don't. You've got to deal with the tough stuff. Right? And you probably read this. You're like, what do you mean they call somebody else gods? And it's actually referring to the, to the Psalms here, Psalm 82.6. Where, where it says, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Sure enough, look it up right there in the scripture. God calls men gods. But let's take a step back and see what Jesus is trying to do here. First, Jesus responds then by pointing out their law. And by their law, he's referring to the Old Testament. He's referring to the scriptures that these men believed with their whole hearts. And uh, even though the, the term law is, in the New Testament, the term law is often used to describe the entire Old Testament, the Psalms, the, the, the prophets, all, the minor prophets, the, the Pentateuch, which is what we would call the law, the first five books of the Bible. But here, Jesus is re- just referring to the, to the entire uh, 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 volume of Scripture that they have up to this point, the Old Testament. And uh, Jesus pointing out their laws was finding common ground for them to come and to debate about this issue, to argue about this issue. Jesus is trying to make a point. He said, listen, we're going to use your laws as the foundation of what we're about to talk about, so that way you, there's, there's no way to back out of it. 
It was something that they could all agree on. In addition, he points out that the scripture cannot be broken. Why did he do this? Was like, first, we're going we're gonna to use the law to talk about this because we can agree on that. Second, the scripture is inerrant and cannot be broken. So they can't go, oh, well, you know, that, that must have just been an error. That must have been a mistake, right? They can't go, wait a minute, it may say that, but we don't believe that part. That's just something Christians do today. We, it may say that, but we don't believe that part. That's not how we should live our life, amen? The entire Bible is inerrant. It is the word of God. So that's what he says. It can't be broken. No one can, can use this as an excuse. And then, like I said, the passage being quoted by Jesus was Psalm 82.6. You are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. And in this passage, God is actually passing judgment against the judges of the earth whom he calls gods, who he refers to as gods. The Hebrew word Elohim is the one that's used there to describe these men. And it can actually be translated as either judges or God. It's translated, depending on who's doing the translation, like that. In, in Exodus 21.6 and Exodus 22.8-9, if you read the ESV version and a couple others, it says, bring, uh, bring them to the gods. But if you read like the New King, King James Version, it says, bring them before the judges. It depends on who's translating it, which way that they translate it. So this word, Elohim, can mean judges. So in this sense... The, these men have been given, been given a specific task to be judges to the people. They were there to be God's representatives. But they had failed in their task because they, they, they weren't being just to the helpless and the oppressed. But as in this sense, in this faculty of them being judges of God's people, operating under his authority, that God refers to them as gods, Elohim as judges. And Jesus wanted to know this. How could they accuse him of blasphemy for saying he is the Son of God when in their very own scripture, in their very own laws, God refers to other men, these judges, as God? He says, listen, how can you, you, you say that I'm blaspheming when he called them gods? These are just regular men. He says, how do you say of him the Father consecrated and sent us? Well, now he's talking about himself. How do you say of the one that the Father consecrated, the one that the Father sent? Don't you guys recognize that I am up here and these other ones are down here, even though God still referred to them as gods? How can you say that I'm blaspheming when God already did it in your law? Seems a little bit hypocritical. <laughs> if they're okay with it in one situation, but not the other. The Bible Knowledge Commentary sums it up well. I like what they said. It says, Since the inerrant Bible called their judges gods, the Jews could not logically accuse him of blasphemy for calling himself God's son since he was under divine orders and set apart and he was on God's mission sent into this world. And he continues on. He says, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. I don't know about you guys, but I kind of love that the Bible makes sense. That it's kind of logical. I love that Jesus 
just lays out some hardcore logic and says, listen, how can you say it's blasphemy in this case, but not in the other case? And then he goes on to say, listen, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. You see, Jesus had already declared his oneness with the Father. He had already declared that he had been sent. Just a second ago, he said he was consecrated by the Father. And he says, listen, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then fine, don't believe me. But if I am, even if you don't believe me, the words that I'm saying, believe the works, which give evidence to the word that I'm saying. Even Nicodemus had said that no one could perform these signs if God was not with him. That was in John 3, 2. You see, the works were the evidence that Jesus was speaking the truth. They were the evidence that the Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father. I mean, this is just like just some plain, simple logic, a simple argument to demonstrate his purpose. And I love the Bible is like that all over the place. And I don't know about you, I have the mind of an engineer. And I love it when it comes out like this, because it's just easier for me to follow. It's not... Uh, this isn't just wishy-washy, you know, based on your feelings. This is just point-by-point point logic and evidence that Jesus is who he says he was. And then we'll finish up here. It says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. I just went on and on about how I loved Jesus' argument. I loved his logic. Apparently, this still wasn't enough for the religious leaders. See, that's the problem, right? We talked about it earlier. Their hearts were hardened. They had already made up their mind. They wouldn't believe it. God could have opened up the heavens and spoke to them, and they would have probably still found a way to ignore it. That's why it's whenever you get those arguments from people that say, listen, if, if, uh, if God is real, have him make that rock right there float. You want to know why God never does that? Because if all of a sudden God were to make that rock float, you know how many people would believe it was God? Not a single one. They would spend the rest of their life trying to figure out how I performed a magic trick and made the, the rock float. Because their mind is already made up. They're not willing to believe, no matter the evidence. So Jesus, knowing that they're trying to kill him again, they're trying to arrest him this time, because it's not yet his time, he heads back across the Jordan. So where we started in the book of John, this Gospel of John, you remember we started by the Jordan. This is where John the Baptist was baptizing people. Jesus shows up for a while, and that's when there was the, the, little, the little tiff between the disciples of John and Jesus, wondering, why are you letting Jesus do this? So he heads back, and here Jesus continues preaching in the countryside, giving many the final opportunity to respond before he left, before he left for the last time. He would not return again to Jerusalem until he makes his triumphal entry and ultimately gets crucified. That's his next time back to Jerusalem. And John, Jesus' ministry was quite different than John's. They said John didn't do any signs. But everything that John said about this man was true. You're starting to see a transition. Now they're starting to believe John. And this is John the Baptist we're talking about, not, not uh, John the Apostle who wrote the Gospel. But they're starting to believe John. 
They began to believe what John said about them. But the great news is it didn't stop there. After that, many believed in him. Many believed in Jesus as they were hearing him preach the word. You know, one of the things as we look at this, we talked about the logic, we talked about the evidence. The evidence for Jesus is overwhelming even to this day. We can go back and we can see the evidence that Jesus lived, that he died. There is evidence that he rose from the grave based on the, the eyewitness testimony accounts of stuff that was going on, what happened in those days. If we were to, to try this case in court, there would be easily enough evidence to prove that Jesus is who he says he was, that he did what he said he did, that he lived, he died, he rose from the dead. The evidence is overwhelming. Yet there are still so many who choose not to believe. They choose to harden their hearts to what is, in my view, if you just take a logical look at it, it's beyond refute. There's, there's no other conclusion that you can come to. So I don't know about you, church, but for me, I am so grateful for the opportunity to hear his voice and follow him. Amen?